you were on your way. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Sunday night we study through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We come tonight to the book of Isaiah. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave and get their attention and they'll give you a Bible tonight. Mark to the place we'll be studying this evening. And, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, tonight. In beginning the book of Isaiah, we uh, begin a new major division of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is divided into five sections. There is the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, also known as the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then following that, there's the historical books of the Bible. And then following that division in the Old Testament, there are the books of poetry or the books of wisdom, which includes uh, Proverbs. It includes uh, the book of Psalms. It also includes Ecclesiastes. It includes Song of Solomon, which we uh, finished here uh, recently. And then the Bible continues, the Old Testament does, into what is known as the major prophets. And the first of the major prophets is Isaiah, followed then by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And then the major prophets are followed by the minor prophets. And they're designated major and minor prophets not because um, certain books are uh, more significant or more important than other books. They're uh, designated major and minor simply on the basis of the sheer size of the books and of the prophecies. And the major prophets are the longest of uh, the prophetic books. I think it's important by way of introduction as we head into this section of the book to kind of remember what a prophet uh, was and is, but we'll think mostly in terms of uh, Isaiah here. He was a prophet, and let me uh, read here for verse 1 with you. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. One of the interesting things, well, a prophet was basically one who was called by God uh, that God would speak to that person and then through that person to his culture around him, a prophetess would be. He would use a prophetess, a woman, uh, to do that. But God would give a message to them. They would receive that message, and they would then declare that to whatever audience God wanted it to be directed toward. Um, we think of prophets most often in the culture that we live in today as someone who is exclusively someone who tells us the future in advance. And there's certainly an element of that related to uh, the Old Testament prophets. Much of what they said was speaking about history in advance. So it met that criteria. I forget what percentage of the Bible, as it was originally written, was written uh, prophetically, history in advance, much of which has been already fulfilled, and then a good portion of which will be fulfilled in um, Jesus' uh, coming for the rapture of the church, the second coming, the great tribulation, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and so forth, on into a new heavens and a new earth. But a prophet was one 
who had a message, who then spoke that message to a people. And sometimes that message didn't have anything to speak about the future. It was a warning. Uh, it was something about their current condition. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, his ministry, prophetic ministry, was one that included both of those things. Some of it were speaking to the immediate condition of the children of uh, Judah at that uh, point in time, and then uh, much of what he spoke also spoke of the future related to them. One of the things that I is, is important to uh, in, in this vein to realize about prophets is the priests were special. They were special, specially called by God descendants of Moses's brother Aaron. But the priests were the priests by pedigree. They were, uh, they became priests by virtue of a bloodline. The interesting thing about the prophets is that they were individually chosen by God for their moment in history uh, to speak for God. And most of them paid a tremendous price uh, for being faithful to the Lord. And Isaiah was one of those who was faithful uh, to that calling. In this introduction, of, there's a little ringing, if we could clean that up for me, or it's just my own ears, I don't know, but it distracts me just a little bit. Now you're distracted by it. If you weren't before, how many of you noticed it prior to this? Just raise your hands here. No, I'm crazy. All right, you're all fine. It's great. In this introduction to the book, in verse 1, we're told four things about Isaiah's prophetic ministry. First of all, that he was a prophet. He was a seer. So the vision of Isaiah, when it talked about prophets in the Old Testament, uh, they were ones who received vision from God, uh, uh, messages from God. They were called seers. They could see things that nobody else uh, could uh, could see. It's also interesting to notice here that the prophecy of Isaiah is a single vision. It doesn't uh, introduce this as the visions of Isaiah, but it speaks of the fact that it is a single vision. It is made up of many, many prophecies, but it constitutes a single vision, one single great communication uh, from God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. His ministry was second to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the nation of Israel uh, was uh, divided into two kingdoms, ultimately, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And Isaiah's ministry was to this uh, southern section of that division, the kingdom of Judah. The historic period of his prophetic ministry spanned uh, uh, four kings. He, he uh, prophesied for the Lord during the reigns of Uzziah, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he ministered for a period of, at the very least, 41 years. And, uh, and nobody can be dogmatic on it, but he, he, he prophesied for at least 41 years. And it isn't unlikely that he prophesied for as, as long as 58 to 60 years uh, for the Lord. A little bit of historical context, I think, without going overboard on it, helps us, I think, to understand a little bit about the situation that Isaiah was speaking into. He prophesied during a very, very critical uh, period in Israel's Old Testament history. His ministry began during the reign of King Uzziah, uh, but he wasn't 
formally commissioned by God until uh, the death of, uh, of Uzziah. We read, we'll read that next week, Lord willing, in chapter 6. But he was formally commissioned by the Lord upon the death of King Uzziah in 742 B.C. And during the early part of his ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel was still in existence. They had not gone yet into captivity uh, to the Assyrians. And so they uh, continued to exist, complete with all of their apostasy and all of their sin. But then about uh, 20 years later in 722 B.C., about the 18th year or so, of Isaiah's formal ministry, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, was conquered by the Assyrians and was taken into captivity. So the early part of his ministry, Israel still, northern kingdom of Israel still exists, though his focus was uh, upon Judah. About 20 years after uh, the northern kingdom went into captivity in uh, 701 B.C., Assyria had kind of a... Um, resurgence of its power and its uh, dominion in that part of the world. And under a king by the name of Sennacherib, they reinvaded the Holy Land, and this time with the idea of conquering the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. They managed to conquer much of Judah, but then when they came to the actual city of Jerusalem, God supernaturally defeated that army. You might remember in Second Kings chapter 19 where a single angel was dispatched by God and uh, supernaturally wiped out 185,000 frontline Assyrian troops and uh, Assyria backed off then uh, from trying to conquer Judah. Judah would ultimately go into captivity, not to the Assyrians, but to the uh, Babylonians. And if my memory serves me right, about uh, 140 years after Assyria went, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity and about 100 years after the death and the end of the ministry uh, of, uh, of Isaiah. So that's the spiritual and the political context of Isaiah's ministry. You've got an, an Assyrian expansionist, military expansionist mentality into that part of the world. People in Judah at this time are acutely aware of Assyria. They are concerned about Assyria and the uh, invasion of potential of their land and, and their the southern kingdom of Judah is deeply characterized by spiritual apostasy. It marked most of the Jewish people at that, um, at that uh, particular point in time. Uh, even though God delivered the southern kingdom of Judah from the invasion by the Assyrians, um, it didn't have a, a deeper, remarkable impact upon the Jewish people there. They just went on about their business and thought, phew, dodged a bullet there, and uh, nothing quite so serious occurred that would require us to go crazy and repent of our sin or anything like that, and they didn't. And so while they had many, many good kings, many, many godly kings, and so when you read about Hezekiah, you read about 
um, Uzziah. These were great kings. These were men who loved God. They destroyed uh, idolatry within the land. But it was basically, for the most part, it was just their own convictions, what they could do with their own power and the resources that they had in their own hands. It never really uh, deeply touched or broadly touched either uh, the general person in Judah. They loved their sin, they loved their idolatry, and they uh, loved how uh, materially uh, profitable it was for them, and they were unwilling to turn uh, from it. Uh, Isaiah was a contemporary of a couple of prophets who recognized their name, Hosea and Micah. He was married. And he was married to a, a wonderful match for him in the ministry. Uh, his wife is described as a prophetess. And he also had two sons. And according to Jewish uh, tradition dating from the 2nd century A.D., Isaiah lived on into the reign of Manasseh. They, uh, people believe that Manasseh's reign wasn't mentioned in this series of kings because he was so old by then that he didn't have um, kind of a significant public ministry by that point in time. But uh, Jewish tradition tells us that when he confronted Manasseh, and Manasseh was the worst king, not only that Judah ever had, but it was the worst king that even the northern kingdom of Israel ever had, and the northern kingdom of Israel never had anything but ungodly, terrible kings. So he was the worst of the worst, but he repented late in life and committed his life to the Lord. It's a beautiful story. We've looked at it already in our journey through the scriptures. But he, the Jewish tradition is that he confronted Manasseh related to his sin. This was an offense to Manasseh. Manasseh had him uh, put inside of a hollowed-out trunk of, of wood and then had uh, the trunk sawn in two and Isaiah sawn in two uh, as a result. Hey, the Middle East has been a bloody, bloody place for a long time. And uh, uh, not like Ireland and Scotland, right, Tom? No bloodshed there. There is crazy and fanatic. The whole world is nuts. They're all descendants of Adam and Eve. So they've all got these kind of uh, parts of the history. But concerning the death of Isaiah in this way, uh, that's what's thought of as being referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, 37, when it's talking about these great uh, hall of faith that you women are going to be studying this year in your women's ministry, uh, where it's declared they were stoned, uh, they were sawn in two. And so the idea is that this was a reference to the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. The theme of the book, the message of the book, is the holiness of God. And uh, the usual title that's used for the Lord in the book is the Holy One of Israel. And that title for God is used 30 uh, times in Isaiah. You say, well, what's the big deal? It's 66 chapters. That's not using it that often. Listen, it's only used six other times in the rest of the entire Old Testament. So God is wanting to emphasize his holiness here in the book of Isaiah. And the idea is that even though his people, not just the world, he's talking about his own people, even though they'd lost sight of this great truth, this important truth about God, that he is a holy God, um, that, uh, that, that heaven treasured that just because 
His people weren't appreciating the truth of it or appreciating that truth about God himself. It was still true about him and the terrible price they were going to pay for disregarding his uh, holiness. You think sometimes, how in the world could the children of Israel uh, forget about that? After all the miracles, I mean, the deliverance from uh, Egypt, all of the miracles in the wilderness, all the miracles of the conquest of Uh, the promised land and what God did for them over and over again. You say, how in the world could they forget his holiness and just ignore it, disregard it? But they they did. And the same kind of thing happens uh, among God's people, even to to this age. Just ask you a question. Don't shout out, please. Would you say uh, from your experience today, that the average Christian you know has a deep knowledge of and a deep respect and appreciation for the holiness of God. Just think about it. And it's good for us to stop and to think, you know, not talking about the world. We know what the world is. We're talking about those who profess Christ, the definition of holiness, Jesus is. Would you say that Holiness is something that is emphasized in the body of Christ in the United States of America today? I don't think so. Or is it waning? I think it's waning. I just heard about a church. I'm not going to tell you where or the name of it or anything like this. But they're just a very large church, significant church. They just had a water baptism. And at their water baptism, they had an open bar. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a water baptism? Protestantism. We're not talking about Roman Catholicism or bingo parlors or whatever. And for the sake of the tape and for the sake of you here, this isn't a cheap shot against Roman Catholics, but sometimes... Things flow pretty good at gatherings. We're talking about Protestants who have the same book of Isaiah in their Bible and to have an open bar to water baptism. We have a water baptism coming up a week from tomorrow. We'll have hot dogs (laughs) and uh, some other ungodly thing to eat, but we will pray for those hot dogs ahead of time so that no deadly poison will hurt us. But I don't think if you've got your eyes open and your ears open to what's going on today in professing Christianity in the United States of America, that there's any sense that we're moving in the direction of an appreciation for a holy God. It's just like, what kind of murder can we get away with and still get into heaven? And it's a terrible thing. So the book of Isaiah has a lot to speak to, not only people 2,700 years ago, but to speak to us uh, even today as God's people. A lot of the book records Isaiah's warnings to the Jews concerning God's judgment. And the reason that there's so many warnings of judgment is that when the holiness of God comes into contact with rebellion among his people, then that always has to result in judgment. 
Holiness must always become judgment when it comes into contact with rebellion among God's people. And so we see this theme over and over and over again. It isn't just God because he's got this judgment complex, you know, that he, it's because the people have moved so far away uh, from him and from his word and appreciation for his nature and his holiness that he has to uh, warn them about uh, the, the uh, judgment. And then as he's talking about judgment throughout the book, almost always the prophecy of judgment is followed by this great vision of future peace or future blessing. And the reason is, is that God loves happy endings. He loves happy endings. And so he judges his people with the idea that it isn't like, okay, now you can see I'm stronger than you and I eat more spinach than you do and I can whoop you any old time that, that I want to. But it's always to bring them to a place where they can then enter into peace and enter into the blessing that's found in the relationship with him that's described in, uh, in his book. And so sometimes he likes happy endings, and sometimes as his children become wayward, then he needs to mete out his judgment in order to bring us back to the life that he's got planned for us. A second theme for the book is salvation, and Isaiah is aptly chosen for many reasons to deliver these prophecies in this book, including his very name. His name means the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. And the word salvation occurs 26 times in this prophecy. And again, somebody could think, well, what's the big deal about that? 26 times salvation is referred to. Uh, that word is used in the book of Isaiah. It's 66 chapters. What kind of a big deal uh, can that be? The word salvation occurs only seven other times in all of the other prophets put together. So there's a main focus upon salvation in the book. And so the book is one vision emphasizing God's holiness and his judgment and his uh, salvation. And again, not only just for Judah 2,700 years ago, but that vision uh, of all of this reaches out throughout the prophecy, not only into our age, but into the thousand-year reign of Christ and into the um, uh, new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah prophesies concerning all of it. The book is quoted 21 times in the New Testament, uh, which doesn't come as any surprise given the fact that one of its main themes is salvation because the New Testament is all about um, man's salvation. And because it's about our salvation, it's all about Jesus, as the Old Testament is as well. So it has, it's quoted 21 times in the New Testament uh, because uh, the, uh, of its theme of salvation. Uh, and Isaiah contains some of the most amazing prophecies. We'll see them as we go through concerning the coming Savior of the world, the coming Messiah, concerning Jesus, uh, and the most amazing, some of the most amazing prophecies in the entire Old Testament. And so the New Testament quotes Isaiah. The Holy Spirit does more than all of the other prophecies uh, put together. The initial, we will get into verse 2 in just a moment, by the way. You say, boy, does he do this all the time? We've got to understand, you've got to have the big picture before you get into the little, little picture here. The initial prophecy of Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah 
constitutes the first five chapters of the book. They are one prophecy, and they're basically set the tone for the entire book. The rest of the book is an elaboration upon what he says in these first uh, five chapters as God establishes the guilt of Judah before God for their sin and for their uh, apostasy. And in chapter 1, the Lord lays out his Indictment, And as we mentioned this morning in chapter 1, what we want to do is we want to put ourselves, envision ourselves in reading chapter 1 as being in a courtroom. And as we're in that courtroom, uh, Judah is the defendant. God is the prosecuting attorney. Heaven and earth, the universe has been called as a witness to the charges that God brings against Judah. And so... Uh, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 31, he lays out his indictment or his lawsuit against Judah uh, for uh, their present sin. And he declares in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So he calls on nobody in, of the children of Israel, nobody's really listening to him to make them a witness to his prophecies. So he calls on uh, the universe to be a witness uh, to the proceedings and to be a witness of the charges that he brings against Judah, witness to uh, her guilt uh, and that the nation had been properly uh, warned of the judgment that was uh, to uh, to follow. So they constitute the jury that's going to deliberate whether the char- charges are true. So he begins with the charges. Again, verse 2. Hear, O earth, and give... Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. His, and he says in his first charge, I have nourished and brought up children... And they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people do not consider. And he confronts their ingratitude and their rebellion. And God likens himself to a father who has brought up children He's fed them, he's clothed them, he's made them great, uh, delivered them uh, productively into an adult life and provided them with everything that they've needed in order to uh, become great. And then once they become adults, once they have everything they want from him, from God, then they turn their back on him and uh, respond with rebellion and respond with ingratitude. Now, this is something that we get used to in this culture because the Western culture, there's very little respect on the part of the younger generation toward the older generation. Just, it's a, it is a youth-oriented culture. Everything focuses on the younger generation. Why? Because that's where the money's going to be made. Listen, by the time you get to a certain age and you get above that age, uh, you're probably not going to buy another shirt the rest of your life. So there's no money to be made in you unless something breaks. It's a, so the whole focus is on fashioning this younger generation and separating them from uh, their money. But that's not the way the rest of the world operates, and it certainly wasn't the way that Judah was or the Oriental or uh, Middle Eastern world was. It was very patriarchal in that society. So we get used to saying, okay, you know, 
kids grow up and their parents have slaved and sacrificed for them. They get into adult life and they turn their back on everything that they were raised in. They complain about their parents, what they didn't have, no matter what the greatness of the sacrifice that the mom and the dad went through to get them into life and adult life and all. And then we just get so used to it. We just, we have, we call it a phase. And of course, it's just something they got to go through. And later on, they'll appreciate it and all. Well, under the uh, law of Moses, it gets you stoned for doing that. So when he talks about children responding to a father in this way, in that, in that Middle Eastern culture, this, like their, their brains just blew up because you just didn't do that. No youngster did that to their father. Nobody brought that kind of shame upon the household. Nobody would cause the rest of the world to look at their father and, and in the way that they would by virtue of this children, child growing up and becoming a rebellious uh, child. So what he's describing here, even today in our culture, when you know that somebody has had, I'm not talking about bad parents or evil parents, but when they've had good parents, they sacrificed for them. They did everything that they could for them. They were raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Everything was done for them. And then they get out of the household and they throw all of that away. They badmouth their parents and all of this. They're stupid idiots. What do they know? And everything. Even in this culture, when you run into it, you look at that person and you may not say it, but the culture even way down deep inside looks and says, that's an ugly person. That's an ugly, rebellious, ungrateful child. Even we feel it. Now, you put that feeling on steroids, and you have what would have happened in the ancient world for any child to treat their father in this way. So it would have been a shame. It would have been a shock. And yet that's what the whole nation did to God. And he's trying to shock them. He's saying, you know, you are doing to me what you would never allow one of your children to do to you. What would pain you so badly? What would shame you and shame your family? But you think nothing of how you shame me. He's penetrating very, very deeply. He goes on to further shock them and attempt to shock them and to shock uh, the heavens and the earth, the jury, Uh, He then declares the people of Judah to be dumber or to be stupider than an animal. So they're dumber than an ox. They're dumber than a donkey. You know, we have sayings, don't we? Someone's as dumb as an ox. We don't usually verbalize those. Say, man, he's, he's as dumb as an ox. Or he's as stubborn as a donkey. And so these sayings are made. But God says in this, it's important to notice it, he doesn't say that they are as dumb as a a donkey or an ox. He says they are dumber than a donkey or an ox because at least those animals know where their food comes from and at feeding time they head to the trough where they know their master is going to put the food into it And no animal treats the one who feeds it the way that Judah was treating the Lord. But Judah had reached a point where she no longer 
connected any of her blessings to God any longer. And so she responded to the blessings with rebellion and with ingratitude. And then in verse 4, he, the second charge that he brings against them is that they are completely wicked. He said, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They've provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. And God lists seven things in that uh, verse. Charges, serious charges against the children of Israel. And it's interesting to note that, and and some of you may not realize this, but in the Bible, seven is the number of completion. Uh, There are seven days in a week. There are seven colors in the rainbow. So it is known as the uh, number of completion. So when God speaks something in a seven, then he's saying in this particular context, in verse 4, he's talking about the fact that they are completely wicked. And it's a terrible list that he lays out. He goes on to then charge them with being unteachable in verse 5. He said, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been, uh, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. And so the idea is, uh, basically, as he says, why should you be stricken again? He's looking at them as a child and he's saying, I can't find a, a, a remaining healthy place on your body to give you a spanking. I've spanked you everywhere I know and every way I know to get your attention until you are this gigantic wounded and bruised mass from head to toe and inside and out. There isn't any place that I haven't tried to get your attention in, uh, in this way. And, uh, and yet none of it has gotten through to them. And so a worse judgment is uh, going to uh, have to come. And it's interesting, though, I think about our country here today and a little bit related to this. And you think about how how much judgment or how many spankings or how much discipline can be meted out on a nation before it turns to God, before it is willing to let go of its sin and turn to God. What needs to happen? I mean, how much will a nation put up with? And I think about what our country, what it is willing to endure in terms of just God's judgment. If it's honest at this point, it wouldn't surprise me, or it's just the sowing and reaping process of, of, of giving ourselves to sin. But uh, what people are willing to endure in terms of the consequences of sin rather than repenting and giving up their sin and turning to God. You think about our national elections. They are increasingly not determined on the basis of economic uh, issues or on issues of policy, but they're incre- increasingly these elections are won on the basis of moral issues. The right to abortion the right to sexual immorality, uh, the right to homosexual marriage, and so forth. 
and a significant and ever-increasing portion of our population in the United States of America is, would rather have the nation sink into ruin and judgment than to give up their sins. So there's certain parts of the Old Testament that you would read maybe 20 years ago and you'd look at and say, man, how stubborn and how dumb and how... I, I can't believe that. Somebody will have to explain this to me. And now we live in just such a time where we're seeing the power of the addiction to sin and how willing people are to let the whole house burn down around them rather than to give up their sin. He then goes on, uh, Isaiah does, to uh, warn them concerning the judgment that was to come. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Ultimately, this would happen as the Babylonians would uh, conquer them later. Strangers devour your land in your presence. You invaded. It's a, it is as desolate. Uh, it is Desolate is overthrown by strangers, and so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become uh, like Sodom, and we would have been like Gomorrah. So God speaks to them uh, of the fact that they're going to be leveled. This judgment is going to come in. Uh, they're going to be defenseless, basically. When he talks about a booth in a vineyard, verse 8, a hut in the garden of cucumbers, when they would work out in the fields, agricultural, they would set together these kind of booths, these, uh, you know, shaky, marginal kind of buildings that they would put together just to provide shade. But they were uh, something that could be easily attacked and easily overthrown. And God said, I'm going to make you like that one day to your enemies. You will be readily overthrown. I will make you defenseless before your enemies. And then in, in verse 10, I, Isaiah denounced all of their religious hypocrisy. And it's interesting, while they're in this wickedness and in all of this sin and rebellion against God and ingratitude towards God, uh, the temple was still full. Uh, the church services, so to speak, were still going on. People were attending uh, the services. The sacrifices that went on daily, they were occurring every day. Uh, the meetings that went on daily occurred every day. The meetings that were supposed to happen weekly and monthly and annually, all of these things, the people were keeping them meticulously. And, but the problem is, is that their heart wasn't engaged in the worship of the Lord anymore. So they had this, anytime you have outward form or outward ritual going on in terms of religious ritual being expressed towards uh, God, but there isn't a heart reality behind it, then it means nothing to God. And so a person who says, I care enough to go to church and I care enough to assemble there for the sake of maybe business or being seen there, or maybe it buys me something with God, but in my private life, I'm not willing to obey God or to honor God, then God says, Listen, dump the church services and get right in the private privacy of your heart and then come to church because otherwise I can't enjoy it at all. This is really a scathing um, uh, section of the entire Old Testament. And the Lord declares, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Ouch! He's calling Judah, the rulers of Judah, as Sodom. 
ruling over Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people. So it wasn't just the rulers, it was the people of Gomorrah. Two names just, again, synonymous with wickedness in the Old Testament. And God looks at them and he says, you're as sinful as Sodom and Gomorrah to me. And the idea is that, listen, uh, what's the old saying? If God doesn't judge San Francisco, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. So, you know, it's kind of the thing that people say and all. But God says it, really says it, uh, to Judah. If I don't judge you for your sin, then... I'm going to owe an apology to having judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. He said, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams. These were offered every day. And the fat of cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? He's just basically saying, stop it. Stop doing this. Stop pretending that it's right between you and me and that all of this is okay just because you do these kind of things because you think it appeases me in some way. He said, bring no more futile sacrifices Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I can't endure iniquity and the sacred assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. I mean, this is God talking about the religious gatherings of his people. He said, they're a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. He didn't need that derive any pleasure out of it, but it was a burden to him. He said, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. He said, in the condition that you are, this is all a sham. It's all just pretend that you're doing. What you really love is your idols at home and your wealth and materialism and all. And he says, so when you come to this place and you lift up hands in the temple and in the services and you pray, and they did pray with their hands lifted up uh, to God, God says, I'm not going to take those prayers any more seriously than someone who has just murdered someone and they have blood on their hands and now they want to lift up their hands and ask uh, something of me. I'll tell you, it's, those, those are fiery uh, fiery words. And then he calls them to repentance. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. How? Well, he tells them, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That's a good word. That's a simple word, isn't it? Are we practicing any of us evil tonight in our life? God says, cease to do evil. Put it away. And then Positively, he says in verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And so you had these rich, powerful uh, people at that time who were using their position and their wealth to take advantage of the poor. I tell you, I couldn't live with myself if I made 50 cents of a ripping off someone who was poor, for whom 50 cents means $200. And yet they were doing that. How cold of a heart could they be? And then yet going to church as if everything was uh, fine. And so the oppression, he says, 
turn and don't take advantage of these people, but defend them. Rebuke the one who is oppressing these kind of people. Take, look out for uh, the, uh, the widow in all of this. So God is very, very big on this in terms of what true religion is. James says in, in his uh, epistle, James chapter 1, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He could have very well been thinking about this passage as he writes that. The importance of church, the importance of worship, the importance of corporate worship, of praise, of worship, all of those things, but also the importance of um, having our daily life uh, be an influence for God and the world uh, around us. And so uh, he talks about turning around and looking after this kind of person our, the depth of our personal relationship with God is, is probably the most um, clearly demonstrated in, in our lives, not by how we conduct ourselves in a religious environment. We all know how to fool all of the people some of the time, as President Kennedy said. So this environment, it is very easy for any of us to put on an appearance of spirituality. But the true mark of our spirituality is how we treat people away from this environment in the daily of our life when we think no one is watching of a human degree. And that's a good thing to have search our hearts and to realize that I'm not spiritual on the basis of how I conduct myself in this environment. I learn the rules pretty quickly in this environment. But I'm not playing a game, so it's, and I know that you aren't either, so it's real. But to realize, listen, I can really get a firm grasp on the depth of my spirituality on the basis of how I treat other people the rest of the week, beginning with my wife beginning with my husband, beginning with my children, and out into the neighborhood and, and into our professional lives uh, as, uh, as well. He then goes on in verse 18, and he gives him this beautiful invitation. You think he says, all right, that's it, flame on, I'm destroying all of you. But he doesn't do that. He's established their guilt to where you put yourself in the courtroom and you're this defendant here and you've heard the case that God has laid out and you know you can't deny any of it before the witness of the heavens and the earth. And, uh, and, and then here's the prosecuting attorney who makes this offer to you. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, double-dyed, in their depth and in their darkness. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you put yourself in this courtroom, and for them, God is charging them with their own sins. But Whatever might, happen, whatever might be the sins of any of our lives, and we're in this courtroom, and let's say all of these things are true about our lives. God lays this whole case out, and then he gives us this offer of being forgiven, the offer of a fresh start if we'll just turn around. 
Well, who in their right mind would turn down that offer from God? And God was speaking to them, of course, of turning from their sin and their wickedness so the judgment that would come physically upon them would be averted. But the picture is a very, very wonderful picture of New Testament salvation as well as God establishes each of our guilt before God based upon our sin and then makes an offer in Jesus Christ that if we will turn to him and reason with him and put our faith in Christ, that our sins will be washed away and we will be forgiven. And again, as we mentioned this morning, what holy ground this is, when you think about how many sinners have just never thought there would be any way that God would forgive someone like them, and they came to this passage in the book of Isaiah. Somebody showed it to them, and they realized there's forgiveness even for me. And so, beautiful passage. He then goes on, and he makes his seventh charge against uh, Israel and declares that uh, Jerusalem has become a harlot. She's prostituting herself for material gain, and he confronts them with it. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. It was known for justice. Righteousness lodged in it. It was known for justice and righteousness. But now, here's what it's known for, murders. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. The whole judicial system is thrown away. You have to bribe the lawyers and the judges even to be heard within the courts of law to have your case be brought before it, much less to get any kind of justice. And he said, therefore the, Lord says, the, therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy and restore your judges as at first. God says, I'm going to clean house. And notice how he comes to them in verse 24 as the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. That word, the Lord of hosts, that word host refers to an army. It refers to an angelic heavenly army. So God comes to them as the warrior God or as a warrior and basically says, I'm not your friend. That's not the kind of relationship we have at this time. You want a war with me, you've got a war with me. And so I'm going to come against you to fight against you in order to humble you and to turn you around. How many of you know you can never win a war against God? You know how many wars I've won against God? Zero. Zero. He always wins, which is wonderful for us. So he comes against them with the idea that you are taking me on and you are in a battle that you cannot win. So why not repent now before it has to become any messier than it is, any worse than it is? 
He says, in your counselors, as at the beginning, verse 26, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. I will uh, restore you. Zion shall be uh, redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth tree which you have desired, they would go out and um, engage in their idolatry in these groves of trees made up of the terebinth tree. And so he says, you're going to be ashamed of your idolatry and all of your sexual immorality and everything that associated it in these, uh, these altars towards these false gods that you've given me up for. And he said, you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. It's all going to uh, dry up. The strong shall be a tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. And so God says, by the time I get done judging you, you will be ashamed of that chapter in your life. You know, shame is a blessing in its own way. Again, in our culture, we do everything that we can to protect people from shame, from feeling it, from experiencing it. We give new titles to every kind of sin. Um, We explain away every behavior. We make everybody a victim until no one knows anything about shame. Nobody knows anything about embarrassment for their behavior. But there's behavior... It's embarrassing and behavior that is shameful. And when a nation removes the stigma of shame and embarrassment from everything and from every sin, then it means that it's probably going to take a very stiff judgment to turn that nation or that group of people around. Then he moves on in chapter 2 and and changes the subject completely at this point and heads into uh, the latter days. He talks about that, uses the phrase there in verse 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and uh, Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. And that use of the word latter days very often speaks and certainly does in this context. It jumps us forward to the day when Messiah or Jesus is going to reign in righteousness in Jerusalem and on the whole earth. It's a funny thing about God as you read through the book of Isaiah and certainly in this early section of it. It's almost like God gets through chapter 1 and it so breaks his heart. He hates it. He hates it. He doesn't want to be disciplining his children. He certainly doesn't want to be judging his children. He loves his children. He saved us into this relationship with him. It breaks his heart. It's almost like he has to take a break from it. I can only talk about that. You forced me to do it. I've, I'm, I, I've got to only can take so much of it. And then I've got to talk about better things, happier things. And, and so uh, he moves then from talking about judgment and into the kingdom of age, when kingdom age when everything is going to uh, get turned around. And I think given a choice, that's what he'd always want to talk about. And what he's talking about here in these 
five verses that are listed here is talking about the day when Jesus returns at his second coming. He establishes what is known as the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where he will rule the world from the city of Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, verse 2, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And so the temple is going to be reestablished in Jerusalem at that time, Mount Zion, and all of the nations will flow to it, Jew and Gentile, during the kingdom age. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And so no more, it won't be any more people hating to go to church or hating the things of God or hating His commandments. They'll long to go there and hear the Word of God uh, being spoken. And then notice there in verse uh, 3, He, that is Jesus, will teach us His ways. Those are going to be very good Bible studies. And we shall walk in His past. No more rebellion. It will all be people walking in obedience to Him. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it will be known for righteousness and the word of God once again. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their plows, uh, their, uh, not their plows, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn uh, war anymore. And so during that thousand years, there'll be no crime, there will be no um, war at that time. I think the latest statistics from 2012 were that something like $1.8 trillion a year is spent on weaponry in the world. And in the millennial reign, there won't be a need for police forces. There won't be a need for military. Uh, governments won't have to support it. Think about the money that's going to be freed up with an end to crime and an end to international aggression. And all of that can be poured into good things and into agriculture. By the way, you're good for farmers to know we're in a farming area. The future is in agriculture. It's not in war. Uh, but that day is not yet. So sometimes people, you know, they see this verse and, yes, let's accomplish this. This is going to happen when Jesus returns. He's going to be the only one that can accomplish this. In the meantime, there are a lot of really bad and nasty people in this world, and we still need police forces, and we need, still need militaries. But the day is coming where they won't be necessary. And so he then speaks to them this encouragement, O house of Jacob, uh, speaking to them of the millennial reign, then speaking to the children of Judah at that time, telling them, encouraging them to come and walk in the light. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then as he moves on into uh, verse 6, this uh, future... Uh, uh, this glorious future for Israel. It's going to be preceded, he says, by a, a great judgment that is going to be meted out against uh, Israel's pride and the world's pride and the world's uh, rebellion. And uh, so much of what's listed in these verses that we're just about to re uh, read here 
It happened when Assyria invaded Israel, northern kingdom of Israel. It happened when Babylon uh, attacked and conquered Judah. But the passage also looks ahead uh, to this kind of cataclysmic judgment that's going to come on the whole earth known as the Great Tribulation Period. He says, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they're filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end uh, to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no uh, end to their chariots. So they're full of idolatry, full of false teaching. They are... Uh, not distinctive from the world in any way. Judah had become very much like the world around it instead of being a witness for God in the midst of that world. God is rebuking that because it included the the worship of idols. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not uh, forgive them. Enter into the rock, and this really begins to speak of the judgment during the tribulation period. Much of this we read about uh, in Revelation chapter 6. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all of the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, and upon every fortified wall, upon the ships of Tarshish, the Gentile world as well, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall surely abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks, and the children of Israel did. When Assyria invaded them, the Babylonians invaded them, But this is speaking of something far greater than that invasion, that part of Israel's history. It's talking about the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation between the rapture of the church and Jesus' second coming where God pours out his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world after he removes his bride, the church, from the world. He says in verse 19, "...they shall go into the holes of the rocks." And into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And you go into Revelation chapter 6 and you see the same thing where men are going and men of high degree, men of power, men of wealth, everything is lost during that period and as God pours out his judgment and they begin to try and find cover within uh, the caves and it says specifically that they are attempting to flee from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The wrath of uh, the Lamb. What does it take to make a lamb angry. Maybe some of you know. I don't know. I know what it takes to make a dog angry. 
Not much, some dogs. But it takes a lot to provoke wrath out of a lamb. It's a peaceful animal. And so here is the world at that time. They will provoke even Jesus to the place where he is forced to uh, judge them. And in that day, we're told in verse 20, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which he made each uh, for himself to worship. He'll give them away to the moles and to the bats. The moles and bats will become billionaires during that time. The idea is everything anyone ever gives God up for, whether it's riches or whether it's power or whether it's fame or whatever it might be, we will always ultimately lose that thing. And the idea is why not give it up now before it has to be taken away from us and then return to God to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that talks about the fact that God is going to shake the world in a way that so that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And what is the only thing that cannot be shaken in this world? The kingdom of God. Everything else is up for grabs and God will one day shake it to expose its weakness and the folly of ever abandoning or rejecting the kingdom of God for something that can be lost uh, so easily. He said he gave his advice as a result of that and it's a very good piece of advice in verse 22. He said, sever yourself from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? And so God speaks to the children of Judah and he says, sever yourself from these kind of people. Run from them. Separate yourself from them and the judgment that is going to come upon them. Who cares what the ungodly think of you as a child of God? Who cares what they think about us and what they say about us? Jesus, the Lord speaks here about the frailty of man whose breath is in his nostrils. And he only has that breath because God gives him that next breath. If God did not give man his next breath, he would just fall over onto the ground, exhale what he does have, and he'd die like a fish out of water in front of you. And there's nothing a man could do to extend his life. We are so fragile. We are so frail. And yet, as Christians, what people think about us, how big sin is, how big evil is, what they think about us, what they say about us, whether on the school grounds or in the neighborhood or in the workplace, it doesn't matter. And God says, don't worry about what they think about you because what they think about you means nothing. Think about what I think of them. 
and the judgment that is coming. And as you think about them, that, then separate yourself from them and the judgment that is going to be meted out uh, upon them. And it's a good word, and it's an important one. Who cares? I mean, what's being said about Christians, the nonsense, all of the stuff, what gets said about us as a group, what gets said about us individually, who cares what the world says or what it thinks? And one day when God judges the earth and that judgment is coming, God spoke to the, God spoke to the, the northern, the southern kingdom of Judah a hundred years. He's warning them a hundred years at least in advance of this judgment. They don't, don't turn away from it. And so what happens is sometimes God gives his warnings in his word, but because there's such a long distance of time between his warning and his actually performing what he's warned, we just begin to think that it's never going to happen. It is going to happen. God's not impressed with ungodly men and women in this world. And he's not concerned with what they think about him or say about him in their rebellion. And he encourages us to be unconcerned as well. Do you sit here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, any of us here today, tonight? You've not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. God's message to you tonight is that God so loved the world, and that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him or trust in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've been made for a relationship with God. God has made a way for you to receive that relationship tonight by simply putting your trust in Christ this evening as you repent of your sin and look forward to the life that he has ahead for you. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service who would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God tonight. The world's in trouble. The Bible teaches, and we can see it, all of the signs for Jesus' return for the church are before us. Will there be a change? Will there be a turn? Will there be a revival? Will there be more time? I don't know what God is going to do. All I know is there's no guarantee of it. He could return tonight, and so begins then the seven-year tribulation period where this world becomes a literal hell on earth, and you don't want to be here. And God doesn't want you to be here, and he doesn't want you to experience the consequences of even your own sin for another day. And so tonight's the night to be saved and have everything change and experience the miracle of being born again and entering into the life that God has provided for you and has in mind for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray.